So if there are any children that need to scoot out to Children's Church, you're welcome to do that at this time. I wanted to uh, also uh, mention uh, uh, thanks to uh, to Ginger and Jaden, who uh, each time we have communion, uh, not only prepare the, the bread and, and everything, the cup, and they come in early to do that. So uh, we're thankful for, for them. I think maybe they're down in the nursery this morning. Well, let's, uh, let's pray as we get into God's Word. Father, it is our privilege and joy to open Your Word together. As we were reminded this morning in our theme of worship, we are to stay true to the Word of God. We confess to You, Lord, that that's not always easy for us. We live in a world that is continually bombarding us with opposite messages, different perspectives of thinking. But we've gathered here today to gain your perspective, to remind ourselves what your word has to say. And so I thank you for the privilege of being able to do that. And so we commit to you this time that your spirit will be in charge guide the words that I speak and uh, use it to encourage our hearts and challenge us to faithfully stay true to the Word of God and live it out in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Well, there's a story told about a, a woodcutter back in uh, days gone by. Though poor was the envy of his village because he owned a beautiful white horse. Many people offered to buy the steed, but the woodcutter refused. One morning, the woodcutter awoke to find his prize horse was gone. The villagers laughed at him, saying he should have sold him when he had the chance. At least he would have had the money. Now the woodcutter had nothing. But the woodcutter cautioned the villagers not to judge too quickly regarding the horse's disappearance. He reminded them that all they knew was that the horse was gone. They didn't know whether he would be, whether that would be a blessing or a curse. The villagers thought the old man was just a fool. But 15 days later, the horse returned, bringing a dozen wild horses with it. The villagers confessed that they had been wrong. But again, the woodcutter cautioned them not to go too far. All they knew was that the horse was back with a dozen more. Whether that was a blessing or a curse, only time would tell. They shouldn't judge so, so much based on so little information. I am content with what I know, he said. I am, per, I am not perturbed by what I don't. The man's son set out to break and train the wild horses, but one day fell from one of the horses and broke both legs. The villagers were quick to judge that the return of the white horse with the others had indeed been a curse. The old man's only helper was now helpless. Yes, the horses were a curse. And again, the old man cautioned them against their judging. All we know, he said, is that my son has broken his leg. More than that, we cannot say. We only have a fragment. Life comes to us in fragments. Soon the country engaged in a war, and all the village's young men were required to join the army. Only the woodcutter's son was exempted because he has broken leg. 
The villagers wailed over the conscription of their sons and agreed that surely the horses and the son's broken legs had indeed been a blessing and the son had been saved from going to war. Exasperated with the villagers, the woodcutter said, it is impossible to talk to you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows if it is a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. Well, Every day we live, we are confronted uh, with our circumstances. And we have the choice to either look at our circumstances from, from the perspective of, oh, what's going on here, and, and make a determination based solely upon those circumstances and our understanding of them, or to think bigger than that, to to understand there may be something more going on. To, to consider what's happening and to react to that circumstance in what would be considered to be a, a logical or a, um, a way that makes sense in the moment. Or to step back and to consider that God be doing something. Right? We can either operate on an under-the-sun wisdom, realizing or, or thinking that this is all there is, and so I've got to figure it out. Or we can operate with above-the-sun wisdom that says, I trust God who resides above all these things, who is working above and beyond all these things, and will bring about a plan and a purpose that is in accord with His good will. Because He's a good, loving, faithful God. Well, as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're making a transition, if you will, from, from a section in, in Ecclesiastes chapters 1 through 6 where Solomon is giving us example after example of life under the sun. And how, when we operate in that way, how everything eventually leads to a, a vanity, a meaninglessness. It's a, it's a chasing after wind. Well, now he moves to a different perspective or a different way of looking at all this, and he begins to give us counsel. And so from chapter 7 through chapter 12, we see more of his counsel to us in light of the reality that life under the sun eventually and ultimately is meaningless if this is all there is. And so we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, contrasting, if you will, the above the sun wisdom with the under the sun wisdom. He says, a good name is better than a good ointment or good perfume, if you will. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because it, that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Or the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This too is futility. For the oppression makes a a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. And do not say, why is that? Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and the advantage to those who see the sun. Wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowing is that for the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? And in the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than the ten rulers who are in the city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you, for you also realize that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart ensnares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is praising, oh, I'm sorry, one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out men to govern them. Now, I'm going to attempt to cover all this um, in the time we have this morning. Um, There's a lot of things that need some explanation and uh, I'm going to give you kind of the overview of, of, of each of these kind of sections. Um, he starts out in these first 14 verses talking about this, this is better than that. He's not saying by saying that that the other is bad. He's just saying that when we have an above-the-sun perspective, when we realize there's more going on than meets the eye, we realize that some things are better than other things, which is usually the opposite of what we would think if we're just living in this world. And so there are four 
right? Because we see above the sun, wisdom has a better perspective. And there are four areas in which he kind of uh, alludes to in, these, in this section. And the first is that sorrow is better than laughter. Again, not saying that laughter is bad. Most of us enjoy a good time, enjoy laughing and, and carrying on, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what he's saying is that sorrow is better. Why? Because sorrow is a better teacher. We learn more in sorrow. He says a good name is better than good ointment. Right? We know that, that having a good reputation is better than just smelling good. That is, being a person of character and having that be the, the fragrance of your life is better than putting on something that just masks the odor. And then he says that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And, and we kind of repulse at that. But the reason he says that is because the day of one's birth, in some ways, is simply a, a day of... Uh, um, perspective or prospects, right? That we don't know what this life is going to be. This, this person, boy or girl, born in this moment, and they've got all this potential before them, but we don't know what they'll do with it. The day of one's death, there's no more time to do anything. And if you have maintained a good reputation all the way through, then what happens when people gather to, to recognize your passing? There is a... There is conversation about your life. There is people that would stand up and testify to the, the good name, to the reputation, to the life that was lived. And there is a, a time when we are faced with death, the death of a loved one, that we pause and we give consideration to what is most important in life. And that's why sorrow is better than laughter. Because it is a great teacher. We learn more through contemplating our death than we do contemplating our birth. David Gibson, in his book, uh, Living Life Backwards, and he is uh, talking about how Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in light of the end. He says this, um, If you live in denial of death, what is there to do but eat and drink, eat and laugh and drink and party? Instead of being superficial, death invites you to be a person of depth. Only someone who knows how to weep will really know how or what it means to laugh. That's the only message of Ecclesi that's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's an invitation to be a person who realizes that living a good life means preparing to die a good death. This isn't all there is. And then Matthew McCullough in his book, Remember Death, says, by nature, we can't imagine the world without us in it. Right? We're just so self-focused. And we tend to, to think that all the world revolves around us. And, and so everything we think about is how it impacts us or how we then are impacting other people. Everything is about us. Right? It's by our nature, we can't imagine the world going on without us in it. And he says, that's partly because we carry a built-in narcissism. We see ourselves as the lead characters in the story of the world. And everything else is defined by how it relates to us. 
but it's also because we rightly perceive that human lives have dignity and that other animals don't have. Every person has a unique, irreplaceable identity that is precious and worthwhile, but death confronts our notions of human significance at all. Death makes a statement about who we are. We are not too important to die. We will die, like all those who've gone before us, and the world will keep on moving just as it always has. No one is indispensable. It's a harsh and terrifying statement. When we've allowed this statement to land on us and sink in, we're prepared for the awe of the message of the gospel. It's another statement of identity. If death, if death tells us that we're not import, too important to die, the gospel tells us we're so important that Christ died for us. Not because death's message about us is wrong. It isn't. On our own, we are dispensable. But joined to Christ, through our union with Him, we are righteous. We are children of God, and God will not let us die any more than He left Jesus in the grave. What an incredible thought. Right? We are going to die. But we don't have to live trying to avoid death. Because Christ has conquered death for us. Therefore, when we go through death, we enter into glory. Because He conquered the last enemy for us. And so this is why sorrow is better than laughter. It confronts us with the realities that oftentimes we don't want to face. Everything about the way we live in our culture is, seems to be trying to avoid death, right? All the health crazes. And it's good. It's good to be healthy. Right? Modern medicine can keep us alive a lot longer from things that would have taken people's lives years ago, and that's a good thing. But we can so get so caught up in trying to stay alive and cheat out death that we forget to live the life that God has given us to live in the time He's given us. He also talks kind of about Finishing well, you know, finishing well is better than starting well. Anybody can start out good. But it's harder to finish well. So the end is better than the beginning in that sense. And we learn more through adversity than we do through prosperity. And so these are kind of the things he talks about in the first four verses that all kind of under this theme of sorrow is better than laughter. Secondly, rebuke is better than flattery. Everybody likes to be told that they've done something wonderful or that they're a good person, that they have, they're appreciated, all those things, and there's, there's a place for that, and that's, that's great. But to be rebuked by a wise person is better. Because reproof challenge us, challenges us to change for good. And not only for good, but for good, for the long time, for the long term. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. It says, do not reprove a, a scoffer lest he hates you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he'll increase in learning. 
So wisdom from above says it's good to be told where you're wrong. And you should welcome that. But oftentimes, we don't like that. Because we, we play the, the scoffer more than we play the wise person oftentimes. But that's why rebuke is better than flattery. The song of fools is, is kind of a flattering kind of thing. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. That better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Enemies will tell us what we want to hear to get what they want. Flattery is empty praise and is short-lived. There's a place for genuine acknowledgement, praise, uh, all that kind of stuff. There's a place for that. But again, as we consider, we learn more when we're told where we've been wrong than when we've been praised where we have not. Thirdly, Patience is better than hastiness. Verses 7-9. through Particularly verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And do not be eager or uh, quick or over hasty in your heart to be angry. And so, patience is better than hastiness. Shortcuts to success usually lead to failure. Most of the people that win the lottery are absolutely miserable. Because everybody wants a piece of it. Right? Everybody comes out of the woodwork to be your friend. And many times, you look at their life about five years after they win all this money, they have none of it left. Or they wish they didn't have any money because they're just so sick of everybody. You don't know who your friend is anymore because everybody wants a piece of it. But see, shortcuts to success oftentimes, in most cases, are really a path to failure. Patience is a lost virtue in a day of instant gratification. We want everything yesterday. And again, our, all that we have and our access oftentimes gives us uh, these things momentarily. Uh, I just looked up on the internet uh, about the uh, about debt in our in our society. While credit has this is what the, the uh, portion of the internet while while credit has increased America's purchasing power, helping them buy ho- homes, cars, and other goods, it's also normalized debt across the U.S. Uh, of September 2022, consumer debt is at 16.5 trillion dollars, with an average American debt among consumers at 96,370. The overall debt figure includes credit card balances, student loans, mortgages, and more. Um, here's how it's broken down. Credit card debt, this is an average, average person in the United States in 2021. Credit card debt, $5,221. Personal loan, $17,064. Auto loan, $20,987. Student loan, $39,487. Home equity line of credit, $39,556. And mortgages, $220,380. That's the average person.
It's unbelievable. We can get access to this. But it's just an illusion. Because we want everything now. Right? Instead of patiently working toward, like, like, our, like generations before us, had to save their money to buy what they wanted, we can put it on loan and get it now. And it's, it, it provides uh, increased stress in our life. And that's why he's saying patience is better than hastiness. And then he talks about anger, right, in verse 9. Because a lack of patience leads to a whole lot of anger. When I'm not patient, then, man, I'm upset about what's going on around me because usually things don't work the way I want them to as quickly as I want them to. Right? He's just upset. And then the last thing he says about this is that the present is better than the past. He says in verse 10, Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? Right? The good old days. Why is it that things in the past are better than the things in the present? He says, it's not from wisdom that you ask this question. Now, we all can look back and look at days gone by and, and see how things appeared better then. I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. He said, it has been said that the good old days are the combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. And oftentimes this is true. We can only remember what we want to remember. And we remember it in a way that we want to remember it. And things aren't as good as we think they were. In some ways they might have been. And things certainly may be a lot worse now than before. Again, I'll quote from uh, David Gibson. He says... Um, He says about nostalgia. It's very common to hear the statement today, almost word for word. Things aren't like they used to be. Why is the world getting so bad? Violent crime is on the rise. I'm glad I didn't have to bring up my children in these days. How many of us have said this before? And then he goes on to say, but here's how I think the preacher of Ecclesiastes would respond to people who say these things. If you think you're living in a world where things are getting worse all the time, cheer up. At least you'll be dead before they get worse. <laughs> Maybe the past was better than the present, but when you start asking why was it better, what you are doing is denying the reality of God's presence in the present. If you think things are worse, do you think God is no longer in control? Do you think He hasn't brought you to the point where you are now that He no longer loves you or has a plan or purpose for you? To ask the question in verse 10 is unwise because it forgets about God. Often when we ask this, it's because we are blind to the good things of the present and ignorant of the evil that was in the past. Right? And, and again, we, we tend to go there. I do at least. I tend to, tend to look back and I see, man. And I even, in a sense, romanticize 
generations ago, and you watch things on, on TV or movies of things in the past, and, you know, it's just there's something about having to go, you know, work the land, and, and you got your food, and you don't have to depend on other people for other stuff, and you, you look back and you think, how great it would be, but how hard was that? I have no idea, because I've never had to work for my food like that. I've never had to till the ground. I mean, i got, I got two tomato plants, and I can't take care of those. I mean, it's just, I mean, they're overgrown because I don't trim them, and then the tomatoes rot before I take them off. I mean, it's like, I do all that so I can have one tomato in summer that I can have a, you know, a sandwich with them. You know, it's, we just don't realize, right? And, and again, I love his point that when we, we are stuck in the past, we're not open to what God wants to do right now in our life. He's still on the throne. He's still working. And He has placed us in the world at this time in history. Not then, not in the future, if there is a future in this world. He's placed us here right now for a purpose. And He's called us to walk in the midst of all this. And so, when we spend too much time dwelling on the past, we're denying reality. And often blinded to what God is up to now and how He wants us to participate. So, above the sun, wisdom has a better perspective if we are willing to stop and consider. And then, secondly, above the sun, wisdom has a bigger plan. More than just reacting to life circumstances as they come, as they appear to us in the moment. Uh, when, because we're always going to face things that don't make sense to us or don't. Uh, don't fit our agenda. And they inconvenience us. And, and some things are harder than other things, but we can get really bent out of shape very quickly if we think it's all about this moment and this right now. But we have an above-the-sun above the wisdom. We have a, a bigger plan in mind. And there's just three things that I want to point out. Again, we, have, uh, we can move through this um, more quickly. Um, but... First of all, we need both wisdom and obedience. In verses 15 through 19, right, he starts out by reminding us of the reality of injustice in the world. He's seen, I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. This ought not to be. In a perfect world, when you're righteous, it has benefits. And when you're wicked, it has uh, consequences. But that's not always the way it is in this world, is it? People who continue down a wicked path seem to uh, prosper after, after prospering in this life. And it's like, how does that happen when somebody who's, who's living the right life and doing all the hard things to, to, to be honest and, and true and the way they deal with people and they seem to get the raw end of the deal all the time? They live in a fallen world. And so Solomon's saying, this, this just doesn't make sense. And then he makes a few statements that if not understood, we can get off, off base here. Verse 16, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Some people see this as, hey man, don't be too, don't be too honest. Don't be too you know, radical about being, being a good person because uh, you're going to ruin yourself. That's not what he's saying. Excessively righteous is to be self-righteous. To be overly wise is to be wise in your own eyes. 
And so he's saying, don't think as you look around and you see injustice, say, well, I wouldn't be like that. And don't think that you always know everything. Lies in your own eyes. Proverbs says, you see a fool? Or you say, it says, you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? Well, there's more hope for a fool than for him. And Proverbs isn't too, uh, too good on the fool. And if there's more hope for a fool than, uh, than for the person wise in their own eyes, we don't want to be wise in our own eyes. And then he says, do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Our tendency is when we see that life isn't going the way we want it to go, we can do one of two things. We can either become self-righteous and say, well, I, if I was in charge, I would do it this way. Or, or we, get, we get, again, wise in our own eyes. Or we say, screw it. There's no point in being, being good if it's not going to benefit me. So I'll just, I'll just join the, the rest of the world and be, be wicked. And he's saying, don't go to either extreme. And I think when he says in verse 18, it's good to grasp one thing and not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. I think what he's saying, and this is what many commentators also point out, is that we have, the, we have real wisdom, hold on to real wisdom, real righteousness, that's not self-righteous and wise in your own eyes, but is proper wisdom, and hold on to obedience, the avoidance of wickedness. Because when we look at the Proverbs, we see both the fear of the Lord in, in, in the Proverbs is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom, right? We see that. But it also tells us that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and a perverted mouth I hate, the, the Scripture says. So the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning of wisdom, but it's also the avoidance of wickedness. I think what Solomon here is saying is that when we fear God, we come forth with both with true wisdom and obedience. Secondly, we need both forgiveness and grace. Verse 20, Indeed, there is a, not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. So if you take this self-righteous, wise-in-your-own-eyes perspective, Solomon's saying there isn't anybody who is perfectly righteous all the time. And so what do we need? We need forgiveness. We need to know that though we might be a good person, we might do many more good things than bad things in this life. We might be considered by many people as an upstanding citizen and a good moral person. And, and even someone might say, man, they're a good Christian. But we, may, we must never believe the lie that we don't need to be forgiven. Christ came because all of us need to be forgiven. And it's important that we who, especially if you grew up in the church and you learn how to behave and you, you followed a lot of those principles and you were morally upright in comparison to many in our world, and you know, we can sometimes take on a self-righteous perspective. Solomon says, listen, there's nobody righteous on the earth it never sins. And so we need to be forgiven. And also, <laughs> I love this. He says, do not take seriously all the words of what are spoken when you hear your servant cursing you. Because guess what? You've done the same thing. 
And so we've got to have grace towards one another. Extend grace when somebody behaves in such a way or speaks in such a way that is not always kind or, or generous or, or loving. And so if we're going to live this better plan, if we're going to live with above the sun wisdom, man, we need, we need to be forgiven and we need to extend grace to other people. I would love to believe that after every sermon on Sunday, you all go back home and you talk at it around the table about how incredibly wonderful that sermon was. But I sometimes think, man, I wonder what they're talking about today. Um, and I wonder if I offended somebody, you know. It doesn't matter to the world. At least it shouldn't matter to me because if I've done what I'm supposed to do, then what you think or say behind my back shouldn't really matter. What, what good or bad, right? Because we don't do this for, for each other ultimately. We do it for Christ. Right? So don't take what others say about you too seriously, whether bad or good. Especially if it's someone who doesn't know you very well. One of the things I remember... You know, you learn a lot when you go to college and, and seminary. You learn a lot, but you don't remember specific things. You just kind of, you gain maybe tools and everything, and then you work those things out. But I remember one particular thing that was said. I don't even remember if it was a Bible college or seminary, but I remember one of my professors, and it was a class that was directed towards those who wanted to go into pastoral work. And he said this. He said, don't believe your own stuff. Because there will be people out there who will for whatever reason, jealousy, maybe they just got offended or whatever, they're going to talk about you in a negative way. Let it go. But he said there will probably be more people who will tell you things that they think you want to hear, but they're insincere. Don't believe the crap. Just know who you are in Christ and be okay with it. Right? Because sometimes people, especially if they don't know you real well, They'll tell you things they think you want to hear. And you just got to let it go in one ear and out the other. And not let it affect you one way or the other. Thirdly, we need both humility and courage. And so he says, I tested all this with wisdom. And he said, I'll be wise to life. In other words, I think he's saying, man, if, I just, if I'm wise, then I'll figure it all out. I'll know what's going on. I'll have an answer for everything. And he says, this was far from me. Remember who this is saying this. The man, the Scripture says, was the wisest man to walk the earth, apart from Jesus himself. God gave him supernatural wisdom. But he says, that's as far from me. What has been remote is exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, investigate, and seek wisdom and explanation to know evil of folly and foolishness. And then verse 29 or 27, he says, Behold, I've discovered this, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, but I'm still seeking to find it. I can't figure it out. Life doesn't always make sense, even to the wisest person that ever lived. And so we need the humility to acknowledge, I don't know it all. I don't have a grasp on everything. I can't figure everything out. I don't have an explanation to give. 
I wish that everyone that came and, and shared their burden that I could, I could just spout some wisdom and some direction and say, this is what's happening. This is what God is doing. Here's, here's why this is happening. I have no idea, Pastor. I can speculate like the rest of us can. But unless the Word of God gives us very clear directive on that, we're really left with, I don't know. But I know the one who does. And he's trustworthy. So there has to be a humility that we have. And then, and then a courage. Because he says in verse 26, I've discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. I think he's talking about the, the adulteress. And, and remember, Proverbs, first nine chapters of Proverbs, it, it talks about this woman of folly, this, this adulterous woman who, who lures a young, naive man into uh, sexual immorality. I think he's saying this is the reality of life in this world is that there is always going to be temptation that will draw you and, and chain you up and tear you down and destroy you. He says the one who is pleasing to God will escape from her. But the sinner will be captured by her. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to stand against temptation. Especially if you have a history of giving in to that. If you have operated in the flesh for a time, and now you're trying to live above that, it takes courage. It takes commitment. It takes a willingness to yield yourself to God day by day. And when the temptation is strongest, you run to God for help. Whether it is immorality or any other form of sin can destroy us. Right? What, does, what does James say about temptation? He said that God does not tempt us, but each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own sinful lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to what? Death. Sin destroys. And so we need the courage to stand against it by God's grace and His Holy Spirit working in us. But we have a part to play. And so there are two ways we can approach lust. We can approach it with an above-the-sun wisdom that says, I have a better perspective. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to understand life knowing that God's working. I'm going to learn from the things that go on here and realize that sorrow is better than laughter. Rebuke is better than flattery. Patience is better than hastiness. And what's going on now, the present, is better than the past. Keep that perspective. And then also to know there's a bigger plan. God is doing something here. And so I need wisdom and obedience. I need forgiveness and I need to forgive others. I need to extend grace. I need the humility to acknowledge I don't know it all. I don't have it all together. But I need the courage to stand against evil, temptation in my life. And by God's grace, as we decide we're going to live 
this above the sun wisdom as opposed to under the sun wisdom. He works through our lives to accomplish what he has set out to do in our lives. In the few days we have to journey on this earth before we go home and join the Lord for all of eternity in his presence. Well, Father, thank you for reminding us today of these things. We ask that you will help us to keep perspective. Oh, Lord, we're so much like the, the townspeople who, who saw what happened to the woodcutter and they say, oh, man, that's terrible. That's terrible you lost your horse. Oh, my. And then, we, then we're so quick to say, oh, this is so great. This is so great. And we don't know the big picture. We don't know what's really going on. So help us to gain perspective. And to trust you to know what you're doing. To have the patience to wait and see how this all works out. To walk into what you call us into. Resting knowledge that you are God and you're mighty. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for this body of believers that you've assembled together. Thank you for calling us together. Lord, we know there are many in our community that do not know Christ and do not have a community of people that they can be a part of, a family to join and uh, to be loved and to love. So, God, we pray that you will give us opportunities to build relationships with people, to see people come to Christ and to incorporate into this body. We might grow as you would have us to grow. Ultimately, we would be all that you want us to be. Thank you, Lord. We ask you in Christ.